Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Welcome to Wikipedia. This week on the podcast. I speak to Dr. Brett Scher. He is medical director over at Diet Doctor, which is a, an extremely popular low-carb internet resource that helps thousands of people optimize their diet to improve their health status through a low-carbohydrate approach. Now, Dr. Brett is a cardiologist in training, and we speak on the podcast today about how he discovered low carb and the response from his fellow cardiologists, the results that he sees in his practice, and how his low carb approach has changed over the years in line with, I guess, our understanding of the important element of a low carbohydrate approach. We also discuss what evidence-based medicine actually means and the important blood markers and tests that you can get to determine your heart health. Such an awesome conversation and Brett is also podcast host of the Diet Doctor podcast, so he is uh, quite clearly brilliant at relaying information in a way that everyone can understand. Dr. Brett Scher is a board-certified cardiologist and lipidologist practicing in San Diego and licensed to practice in seven states. He's full-time medical director, writes blogs, reviews, guides, and news stories for medical accuracy, and he hosts the Diet Doctor podcast. His main focus is on preventing and reversing heart disease naturally, rather than putting patients on medication unnecessarily. Dr. Schur has also obtained specialist certifications in functional medicine, nutrition, personal training, and behavior modification. And you'll hear in the interview that he um, has always been active and um, was also into triathlon at one point in time. So he is also author of the book, Your Best Health Ever, and has a blog and website over at lowcarbcardiologist.com, but does spend the majority of his time over on the Diet Doctor website. Before we kick on into the podcast, the best way for you to support us is to go to your podcast platform and hit subscribe. And also, if there's an opportunity to leave a five-star review, you could even put a few words in there, that would be amazing, but you don't have to. That way, more people are aware of Wikipedia and get access to the type of information that the experts I speak to are here to share and particularly in a podcast like this all about cardiology and heart health it is you know the more people that hear these messages I think the better thanks team for your support and on to my talk with Dr Brett Scher. Dr Brett thank you so much for joining me this morning I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk I love your podcast The Diet Doctor and I've learned so much from your insights and of course with the guests that you have on your show and really enjoyed your Metabolic Health Summit presentation this year and I also have access to the last couple of sort of virtual summits which um, I was just watching one of your presentations uh, yesterday in fact uh, and again really learned so much from you. Can we just sort of start the conversation by you talking a little bit about your background, first your interest in cardiology, but then of course how you then became interested in a lower carb approach. Yeah, well thank you. Thanks for that intro and uh, all those kind words and it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so my, my background, you know, I, I started off going to med school wanting to be a sports medicine doctor. You know, I was an athlete, I was a competitor and I just that was sort of my initial pull. But once I did my cardiology rotation, I was like all in. I just I kind of fell in love with it. And I really like the combination of, you know, working people in, it with an, in an outpatient setting, managing risk factors, working with them long term, plus the procedural aspects. So you're using your hands and you're getting technical, plus a little bit of like the emergency room aspect with acute uh, heart attacks and MI. So it was sort of like sort of ran the whole spectrum of, of helping people in so many different ways. Then as I got deeper into cardiology, though, that's where I really wanted to start focusing on preventive cardiology. So my, my cardiology fellowship was a combined general and preventive cardiology fellowship. 
And then I got out in the real world, you know, thinking here I am well-trained. I'm just going to stamp out heart disease and all my patients are going to do amazing. And that was just far from the truth. (laughs) Reality was quite different. And, you know, I kind of just kept racking my brain as to why am I not having the impact I wanted to have? Why are my patients not all coming back and telling me how great their lifestyle is and how much they've improved their health? And in fact, it was quite the opposite. So um, to try and dig into it a little bit more, I created Boundless Health, which was at the time sort of like a boutique wellness center um, where a friend of mine who's a health coach and I were, were working on spending more time with patients, really trying to see how we could help them. And fortunately for me, he was very knowledgeable and experienced in ketogenic diets. That's not why I chose to work with him. He was just an amazing guy. That's why I chose to work with him. But so he actually kind of educated me on low carb and keto diets. Um, and it, it was from there, it sort of took a number of different paths, I guess you could say. On the one hand, it was sort of amazement that here was this tool that could help so many people that I never knew about. Then second was sort of frustration. Like, why didn't I know about it? If, if it is a tool that is so that actually has research to support it and clinically is so useful. And then thirdly was just anger at sort of the superficial nature of um, nutrition and lifestyle education and counseling. And so from there, I sort of kind of made it my mission to help people who don't know this exists, either clinicians or individuals. Um, how to help people uh, learn about low carb nutrition and better lifestyle therapy to help with not just preventive cardiology, but just you know health maintenance in general and this concept of metabolic health, which you know twenty years ago was not part of cardiology. Even ten years ago was not thought of cardiology. Now it's starting to be thought of a little bit more as cardiology, but it's not cardiac health or metabolic health. It is health, and they're they're all combined. So from that, that led me to a whole series of different things, you know, first having the low carb cardiologist podcast and being fortunate enough to, to run the diet doctor podcast and then coming on board as the medical director for diet doctor, um, where really we can just focus our attention on how do we help millions of people improve their metabolic health? What lifestyle therapies can we help them, um, adopt in a, in a very practical and easy way? And that's scientifically based and evidence-based so that we know it works. So yeah, that's kind of my, my structure, how I got to where I am now. And it's been, it's been a great ride. Yeah. So then Brett, you've always been interested in that preventative sort of focus then. And, and even though you are, you know, you're a doctor and a medical professional, I would say that there are many people in that field that aren't necessarily uh, interested as much in that lifestyle preventative as they might be in in the treatment aspect. So, but health for you as a, an individual has always been important. Then, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with my background as an athlete, as you know, seeing my body as something more than than just a body. You know, it was it needed to perform. I needed to perform. I needed to know how I could perform best. And that now, to be fair, that isn't always you know synonymous with health. I was you know, downing my gels and bananas and bagels during my triathlons, you know, so there's that, but, but it's, it's, that was the form, the basis of it. And then as I learned more, I learned better, I learned better ways to, to approach health, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, our, our medical structure is really set up towards, um, medication treatment and intervention, um, therapies, you know, like whether it's procedures or surgeries or whatever, that's where it's geared towards. And prevention is is just swept under the rug in many many um, practices and group settings, and 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 you know part of it is um, the frustration and seeming futility. I think you know all it takes is a few examples of recommending somebody eat less and move more and improve their health, and they come back six months later and they're worse than they were before, and you just say, "See, it doesn't work. Why bother?" As opposed to thinking, "Wait, maybe there's something wrong with my message. Maybe there's something." Maybe there's a different way I could be approaching this that actually would work as opposed to saying that doesn't work. And I felt, I felt victim to that too. I was like, gosh, lifestyle interventions just don't work for most people. And that's okay. Here's your prescription, right? I fell into that. I fell into that trap too. Unfortunately, I was able to extricate myself from that trap, but now I want to help other doctors do the same. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's interesting that your health coach colleague sort of introduced you to the low carb or the 
ketogenic diet. And, you know, I'm a nutritionist and I remember when I first uh, sort of learned more about it and was a very enthusiastic and was chatting to my nutrition colleagues and they would say back to me, but Mickey, what about ketoacidosis? You know, like this yeah. ketogenic, you know, so, you know, those myths yeah. sort of that, that sort of come with the ketogenic diet, which I feel unless prevalent now i feel like there's more knowledge that um it's not going to kill you necessarily um is is out there in the in the space but do you remember brett what your colleagues what their response was to your approach you sort of oh sure they thought i was crazy <laughs> no two ways about it yeah, yeah they thought i was crazy and yes it was a combination it was ketoacidosis i mean which just shows how uninformed people are you know you think of ketosis and all that we think about is ketoacidosis because that's all we learned about ketosis we didn't learn about nutritional ketosis right so it, it's it's um it's not that they're not intelligent people it's just that's what they know it's what they were taught right uh, but the second is you know fat you know the fear of fat can eat fat saturated fat any kind of fat you just it's bad you have to eat low fat diet for heart health period end of discussion you know no open for for debate um and when you've been taught that and practiced that way for years or decades, and you see somebody doing something the exact opposite of that, of course, your reaction is going to be that person is crazy. What are they doing? So, you know, I had to sort of toe a line and um, at first not be too vocal about it. And then eventually become overly vocal about it. Once I had like a little more confidence, I guess, uh, to become overly vocal about it to try and educate everybody else as well. Um because, you know, I can, as one physician helping, you know, a handful of patients, I can make a difference. As a physician educating other physicians, I can make a much bigger difference and then trying to educate the public in addition to physicians. That's how I can really reach the most amount of people. Yeah, no, I completely agree because then that allows people the opportunity to have that uh being proactive about their health, even if it means that they're taking papers or they're taking research to their own doctors and saying, Look, mm -hmm. it's actually there like the the sort of evidence base is there do you feel yeah that i love that part oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt mm -hmm. i was just going to say i think that's such an important point and it's a, it's a point i make frequently about all of our content at diet doctor and i'm like look your doctor may not know anything about ketogenic diets may not know anything about diet doctor so please print this educational guide out with its 30 references that are in there and bring it to your doctor um, it's a five minute read, but they'll see how it's evidence-based it's referenced. And maybe they'll, you can, you can start the education for your doctor, um, rather than the other way around, right? It's a two yeah. way, it can be a two way street. So I think that's a great point that I hope that people are using our resources at diet doctor in exactly that way. Yeah. I, and, and I feel sometimes that doctors get a bit of a bad rap actually, like in, so here in New Zealand, general practitioners, like they are experts in their field of general practice um, mm -hmm. and they're very busy and I understand that that's the same in your sort of medical system in the sure. states as well so they might not have the opportunity to sort of delve into that stuff to this to the extent that they might even like so hopefully yeah. most doctors are really happy that their patients take ownership of that process I guess. Yeah. I mean, look, if a doctor shows up at the office at 7.30, leaves at 6.30, then has dinner with their family and is just, you know, exhausted and putting the kids to bed and just wants to sit on the couch and watch something with their family before they go to bed and do it all over again, where are they going to have the time to learn about all this stuff? And and it's true. I think our primary care doctors are overworked and undereducated, at least undereducated outside of the realm of, of, of um, big pharma. You know, that's where most doctors, busy doctors get their education um, because they're the most aggressive about showing up in your office and handing you pamphlets and giving you samples and all that kind of stuff. That's where they get their education. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's not always the doctor's fault. I mean, a lot of times it's the system's fault. Um, the system isn't made to encourage um, intellectual curiosity. It's not, you know, made to encourage people doing their own research and learning on their own. Um, and, and that, I think, needs to change, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, so, Brett, have you seen a change in over time in the physicians that you come across and their perception of low-carbon ketogenic diets now? Yes and no. Um, you know, those who 
sort of dug their heels in and were adamant against it still are. Um, they're just, there's a, a large swath of doctors who are just completely opposed to it and you're not going to convince them otherwise. And that's unfortunate, but there's this middle group that actually says has been open to it. And once they sort of see it, either the effect on their patients or start to see the science behind it, it does open up this door and they're like, huh, okay, there is a place for that. And that's what I've been most encouraged about is seeing the number of physicians in that group really growing and increasing. Um, and it doesn't mean, you know, they don't necessarily classify themselves as a low carb diet, although, uh, sorry, low carb doctor, although that group has been increasing as well. Um, but they, they consider themselves someone who's aware of it and will use it in the right situation or know how to refer somebody to someone in the right situation. So, you know, I still get a lot of referrals from some of my old colleagues who are like, Hey, you know, I don't feel comfortable starting someone, this person on a ketogenic diet, but I want them to come see you so you can start them and you can help me understand how to follow them for safety and efficacy, et cetera. Whereas 10 years ago, it wouldn't have even crossed their mind, but now at least it crossed their mind and they're willing to take that next step to get it started because they know it can help their patients. Um, Britt, I've heard you talk about evidence-based medicine before and people talk about this in context of sort of being current and up to date with the literature or the evidence, but this might not um, necessarily translate into best sort of practice. Can you talk me through what you mean by evidence-based medicine and where you see there might be a disconnect? Yeah, it's a great, great question. You know, it's gotten to the point where it feels like you can just throw out the term evidence-based medicine and that's supposed to say proof. This proves I'm right and it's evidence-based and there's no room for discussion. But that's that's not what evidence-based is supposed to mean. I mean, evidence-based means that there's literature to support it and there is scientific evidence to support it, but that's all it means. It doesn't tell you anything about the strength of that scientific evidence. So one thing I think we really need to focus on is the strength of our recommendation needs to be mirrored by the strength of the evidence. And where this is most obvious is in nutrition science, where so much of the evidence is based on really weak evidence. You know, these, these, um, these studies that just data mine on these huge population subsets um, where you have, you know, two frequency, two food frequency questionnaires over 15 years, and there's so much confounding variables and healthy user bias. And, um, but you use that evidence to, to prove, quote unquote, prove something is, is true and relating to nutrition and medicine. And that's, that you can say that's evidence-based, but what we do at Diet Doctor is we're going to label that evidence as very weak evidence. Whereas if it's a randomized controlled trial, we'll label that as moderate evidence. And if it's a meta-analysis of a whole bunch of randomized controlled trials, we're going to label that as strong evidence. Now, even that isn't perfect. There can be some poorly designed randomized controlled trials, um, but it's certainly, you know, in general, that's going to be a stronger level of evidence than data mining observational retrospective data. So the point of evidence-based medicine um, needs to be sort of joined with a discussion of the strength of medicine. And I, 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 sometimes I even cringe myself saying something's evidence-based or evidence-based medicine, because you need to say more about what that means rather than just throw that out there. You know, you could say, um, you know, Ansel Keys, his observations were evidence-based. Well, yeah, I mean, does that really help us? No, not at all. So um, we need to be clear about the quality of evidence, which I think far too often doesn't happen. Yeah, no, I totally appreciate that. And you, know, you often see out there in uh, that sort of public space when media picks up on a relative risk, for example. And that I think that's another place where in nutrition science, you know, what is sort of deemed to be worthy of um, evidence as I understand in other sort of scientific fields, it's, you know, like 1.12, for example, because it's a science, because it's uh, quote unquote significant, therefore it's, you know, it's a strong association and it's just, uh, yeah, the messaging is, is often, it's often conflated, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's laughable is, is really what it is. I mean, so there's a couple of things. One, when you're talking about sort of medications, there's relative risk and absolute risk. So, you know, statins can reduce the risk of heart attack by 
Well, the other way to look at that is a half of a percent over five years in absolute risk, but 35% sounds so much better, right? So it's not that it's zero, but which is more pertinent for you as an individual. If you're talking about a whole population, 35% reduction, okay, that's something. But if you're talking about you as an individual, what does that really mean? And that's where the 0.5% over five years is a much more you know, pertinent number for you. Then for nutrition science, just like you said, a hazard ratio of 1.1 is laughable. You know, the hazard ratio for tobacco and, you know, smoking and cancer was somewhere between 15 and 30, depending on the studies you look at. Not 1.15 and not 1.30, but 15 and 30. So then to say, to look at something and say 1.1, 1.2, this is significant. This is a big deal. Well, what in the world does that mean to one individual? And what is the scientific likelihood that that's a real effect rather than some confounding variable um, and just you know statistical variance? And so those are two questions that aren't frequently answered when we talk about these razor thin hazard ratios as if they say as if they prove everything and really need to be followed with such strong um, advice and such strong beliefs, which is again not not backed up by the uh, quality of yeah, science. Yeah, no, completely. Um, Brett, can we sort of move on to the individual and, and things that they should consider or, or look at with regards to their heart health and markers of heart health? What are the markers that you think are important as an individual to sort of uh, take note of as we sort of move through life? Yeah, well, as I mentioned earlier, it's not this discussion of metabolic health or heart health, because metabolic health is heart health. And there was this great study published, I guess it was a little over a year ago in, in JAMA, um, which was a, a look at the Women's Health Initiative and look, following women for over, I think it was 17 years, looking at the markers that were most predictive of developing heart disease. And LDL was on that list. You know, it had an odds ratio of about 1.3, and ApoB was even better at about 1.9. But a measurement of insulin resistance, the lipoprotein insulin resistant measurement was like six, so far superior. And then type 2 diabetes was 10. So, I mean, they're not even in the same ballpark, but yet we frequently focus so much more on LDL and ApoB. And again, not to say that it's not important because it, it wasn't zero, it was. Uh, it, it was an elevated number, but these, but the markers of metabolic health were far superior for predicting development of cardiovascular disease, which just goes back to my statement that metabolic health is heart health. So that's a long way of saying, you know, paying attention to your glucose, your insulin, paying attention to um, not just your LDL, but your LDL particles and your small particles and your ApoB number, your ApoB to A1 ratio. All these markers that that go deeper than just the superficial LDL, your triglyceride to HDL ratio, because they represent not just lipids, but they also represent metabolic health, which is so important. And blood pressure, another part of metabolic health, but you don't even go to the lab to. You can just measure it at home. So important. So many people have no idea what their blood pressure is. They get it done maybe once a year in their doctor's office where it's measured incorrectly anyway. 90% of the time. I just made that number up 90%, but it seems like most of the time it's measured uh, incorrectly. So you can measure it at home correctly, you know, with a monitor uh, and know your blood pressure. And that's important too. So, I mean, those are the the basic markers that everybody should be following far beyond a one fasting blood sugar and, you know, one LDL marker. Um, instead, check your blood sugar throughout the day. I think everybody should have access to a CGM for at least two weeks of their life. Um, so you can learn, sorry, CGM continuous glucose monitor in case there's some that aren't familiar with that. So, so you can learn how foods affect your blood sugar, how different activities affect your blood sugar, what it is during the day. Those are better markers, more, more helpful markers than what you're going to get at most, um, standard medical evaluations. Yeah, sure. And how easy is it for people in North America to access particle number, ApoB, markers like that because i know here in new zealand when people ask for bloods from their doctor they get a standard sort of uh, lipid panel which has total cholesterol which is you know um kingpin and then they've they've got the um triglycerides calculated ldl hdl and that's about it yeah so i guess the good news is you can still use triglyceride to hdl ratio as a surrogate marker for particle size and 
and metabolic health, although it's not perfect, but it's, it's better than nothing. So the key is, even if that's all you have, pay more attention to your triglyceride HDL ratio. In the US, though, we have direct-to-consumer labs where you no longer need a doctor's prescription, which is fantastic. I mean, absolutely, people should have access to it. Now, the unfortunate thing is, and if your doctor's not ordering it, frequently insurance won't cover it. So it is out of pocket, um, which could run you know, 50 to $200 or something like that, depending on which labs you're going to get done. But at least they exist. So somebody who wants to be proactive, wants to know more, wants to get a better analysis, but is being held up by their physician or their medical group that doesn't condone this type of testing, they have an outlet to go to. Now, hopefully the price will come down. Hopefully insurance will cover it. Hopefully more medical groups will just start ordering these tests routinely. Um, but as it stands now, at least there is a place for them to go. So I wish that it was that way everywhere across the world, but at least here in the US, it's pretty, um, pretty prevalent. Yeah. And, you know, here in New Zealand and Australia, there is a lab group called NutraSearch who you have the ability to access not all of those markers that you described, but, you know, a fair few of them for several hundred dollars, but you're right. Like there is, if, if someone is proactive and they have the resources, then then there is a little bit of a way to, um, you are a little bit of the way there. But I think that that triglyceride to HDL ratio, which you can easily work out from your lipid panel, um, is certainly um, useful. And of course, how do you, do you look at that in light of what their A1C is doing, Brett, or their fasting glucose, fasting insulin? Like, how do you sort of view the entire, you know, what tests would you get your patient to get? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely um, like to have the triglyceride HDL ratio as well as a hemoglobin A1C and a fasting insulin. And there are some labs that will give what's called an insulin resistance score, which I, I want to see as well, because um, I think that can be really helpful. Now, fasting glucose, I find the least helpful of any of those tests. It's a one-time marker. People who are low-carb or doing intermittent fasting frequently have high fasting blood glucose. And it can be the highest number of their day. And the rest of the time, it's, it's, it's um, much lower. And so I, I think it can be very misleading in those scenarios. So I think we do have to look far beyond just a fasting glucose. And again, that's where I think CGMs can be so helpful. Yeah. In the US, you do need a prescription for CGMs, which is, uh, which is a drawback. And there are companies like um, Levels Health and Nutra. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to hit myself for not remembering their name. Uh, anyway, there are, there are other companies that, that can get you CDMs, but again, at a, at a cost, at a, out of, out of pocket cost. Um, whereas if it's from your doctor, even if insurance doesn't cover it, it's like, I don't know, 35, 40 bucks for two weeks, which isn't all that bad. But so that's why I like the CGM data is fantastic. A hemoglobin A1C plus fasting insulin plus triglyceride to HDL ratio plus some sort of insulin resistance score. That's, I think, the best for um, a broad and comprehensive picture of metabolic health. Mm, thank you. It's interesting. Here in New Zealand, fasting insulin isn't an automatic test, which I always find really interesting because your glucose can look a certain way because you're having so much insulin pumped out. And if, unless you know what's going on with insulin, then you're not really going to understand whether it's uh you've got good glucose control or it's only controlled because your insulin is sort of going crazy in the background yeah great point that's why a HOMA IR um can be really helpful because it just factors in glucose and insulin so sure your fasting glucose is something but what at what insulin level does it take to maintain that fasting glucose so that's certainly more effective than or more helpful um than just a, a fasting glucose but you know fasting insulin isn't mainstream in the u.s either um you know people frequently have to push their physicians to get it done yeah um brett what is it about a low carb diet that means that someone's fasting glucose might be higher? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, for one thing, it usually means that their glucose is during the day are lower. I mean, that's the most important thing. We sort of focus on why it's higher, but the 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 key is the beneficial part. The key is is that it's lower during the day. It doesn't you know have, have as big rises with your meals, um, and your pre meal tends to be low as well. Now there is this concept of physiologic insulin resistance or you know adaptive glucose sparing or there are a couple of different names for it but basically it's your your body's way of i i, I guess to um 
what's the word uh, amorphize the the body is like the body says i'm not getting a lot of glucose but the you know i think i need a little energy so uh, i'm going to crank out some glucose from the liver as i get prepared to wake up here that's sort of like the general concept but it happens because your body has this physiologic insulin resistance which is i don't even like that term insulin resistance because it, it's not really insulin resistant because your 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 body is not truly insulin resistant but it, it needs it feels the need to crank out some glucose for the morning to get you going. But then it comes, you know, it can come right back down. And certainly with your meals, it's not going to rise up so that I still think low carb eating is overall beneficial for glucose and metabolic health, which studies show despite um, a potentially elevated um, fasting glucose. Now, you know, for most people, it's going to be in the 105, 110 range, sorry, milligrams per deciliter. That's how my brain works. Um, but not like the 140s, 150 range, right? There's a there's a level there where it's probably not the dawn effect anymore. But um, that's usually what we see. And I wrote a whole educational guide at Diet Doctor about the dawn effect, which is one of our more popular guides with people who who um, experience this, which are quite a few people eating low carb diets. Yeah, and the dawn effect is is in relation to people with. Uh, type 1 diabetes am i right well so that's where it was originally described yes um for people with diabetes um and so it you know if you have diabetes and you're experiencing the dawn effect that's a very different scenario than if you don't um so the key is your glucose is elevated and at what level of insulin is it elevated um so that's where you would say you know at type 2 diabetes you might have high glucose and high insulin but people who are eating low carb could have a slightly elevated glucose and low insulin. And of course, people with type one diabetes, it's all about your insulin administration and when you're dosing it and how you're dosing it. So completely different scenarios, but that's, you're right. That's where it was initially described. And I guess we, we just have sort of adopted it to say, well, look, it's considered the Dawn effect, but here's how it's different in people who don't have type one diabetes and are eating a low carb diet. Yeah. Nice. And I'll, um, include links to those resources as well because I think people will find them like super helpful um Brett do you see people come into your clinic um who are fasting whose cholesterol rises because of the fasting like what's going mm -hmm. on there yeah so you know Dave Feldman you know not a doctor an engineer citizen scientist has done more to help us understand how volatile lipid testing is and how they can change acutely depending on what you're eating or if you're eating. Um, he's done more to popularize that and to get people talking about it than, than anybody I'm aware of, which is pretty cool. But yeah, acute changes like that can raise um, your LDL, whether you, know, you, you um, are fasting, your LDL can go up. Um, whether you start eating a whole bunch of fat and overeating calories, your LDL can go down. The the theory is it's you know uh, energy demand, um, energy supply and demand basically. That if you're fasting, you don't have a lot of glucose coming in. You're not using glucose for fuel. You're starting to burn fat for fuel, um, and so that can affect your LDL as you're increasing VLDL and triglyceride transport, and because uh, you need to transport triglycerides for fuel within your body. Um, and so the same can be true, um, on this Dave's lean mass hyper-responder theory. Um, you know, it's all hypothesis in terms of the mechanism, but I guess it certainly makes sense. And he's published a couple of papers about it, but I think the key is even if we can't hundred percent say what the mechanism is, it's important to realize, uh, how you can manipulate LDL and how it can go up and down, um, and how it does seem to be involved in fuel transport. And so the point there is we have to consider elevated L we have to consider that not all elevated ldl is the same because if someone walks into their doctor's office with an ldl of 200 again milligrams per deciliter i apologize just how my brain defaults to um the doctor is going to think this is dangerous this is hereditary this is familial hypercholesterolemia but what Dave's theory has shown is like no there are other reasons for elevated ldl and we it's clearly not familial hypercholesterolemia and the majority of the patients who are eating low carb and have elevated LDL because it's, it's just a whole different mechanism. So I think that's the most important take home that there's a different, that different mechanisms exist for why LDL may be elevated. And we have to consider that maybe the risk isn't all the same. Now, yeah. we also have to say we don't have that evidence to prove 
that is not the same in long-term, you know, high-quality clinical trials. But based on mechanisms, we have enough to say, hmm, maybe we should think about this differently and evaluate everybody individually rather than treating them all the same based on guidelines of, you know, the bell curve for tens of thousands of people. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, you know, I find it interesting that people make decisions on medications based on just one measurement of cholesterol is how I see it. You know, I have a lot of clients come to me and their doctors are pushing for them to go on a statin because their cholesterol is high. When in fact, actually, when I look at the numbers, because um, I look at them much the way that you describe, you know, that you, we should look at them, um, they don't look at all worrying to me. And I've seen so many now over the last mm-hmm. sort of 10 years. Uh, yet, this one, this person gets their cholesterol measured, uh, not fasting as well, and their doctor then flags them for for medication, which which worries my client obviously. And then it's sort of you know my doctor wants me to do this, but you're telling me it's fine. You know, it's confusing for them. I think. Yeah, it's very confusing. Very confusing, especially when people get. Um, doctors can get really sort of animated and use terms like you're a ticking time bomb and this is very high risk and you're going to have a heart attack any minute. Like, I I don't know, you know, those are so emotionally charged and over-exaggerated terms, but they're real terms that patients come to me telling me that their doctor said these things. And it's probably coming from a good place that the doctor is genuinely concerned about this person and wants to impress upon them how concerned they are. But oftentimes they're just wrong, <laughs> just flat out wrong, which is which is really problematic, and um, and that is confusing for patients. And unfortunately, I see it far too often. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Doctor Brett, can we talk a little bit about coronary calcium scores? So, is this helpful to get a gauge on heart health, or is it in a certain context it's more helpful, more explanatory than others? Like, is this something that we should be getting at a certain age? Yeah, so coronary calcium scores are a fantastic tool, but they're just that. They are a tool. They are not definitive of cardiovascular health. Um, They're not the one test that says everything. So they're a great tool to include with your workup. And personally, I think everybody should get a calcium score at some point in their life, whether that's 50 years old or 45 years old or 60 years old, whatever, based on your risk factors and your, your family history. And the reason why I think everybody should get one is because they don't come with a timestamp. So if you get a calcium score when you're 65 and it's, you know, 92 and you're like, wow, I've been, you know, following a low carb diet for the past year. Uh, am I killing myself? Cause I have a high calcium score. Well, you have no idea where that calcium, when that calcium was laid down and when that vascular injury occurred, it could have been 10 years ago when you're eating donuts and Cheerios and, you know, um, Nice cup, by the way, with your Iron Man cup. I just saw that. Okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. sorry, distraction. Very nice cup. Got my 2016. It was it was this my favorite cup. The way I got it at um, Kona. I was spectating, not not competing. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Are yeah. you an Iron Man athlete, by the way? Uh, former. Yeah. In oh, Ninety. Amazing. Gosh, what year was it? I got to think now. Ninety six. I did the uh, an Iron Man at the Vine Man, and. <gasps> So that was, I I still have like t-shirts and sweatshirts from that event that I just never wear because they're like relics and and like, I just want to preserve them forever to to preserve the memory. I don't blame you. Yeah. (laughs) But now, um, of course, I've totally lost track of what I was saying there. I have no idea. Oh, (laughs) oh, it was coronary. It was uh, coronary calcium. Oh, the calcium scores, right. Obviously, Barry will edit this out. Um, uh, Coronary (laughs) calcium score. Well, leave it in, leave it in. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, and you would, and we were talking about that. It's um, time no idea. There's no timestamp. Yeah. There you go. Right. So you don't know if that was late, if that calcium in the vascular injury occurred, you know, five, 10 years ago when, when you were eating, you know, high carb um, junk food basically, or mm-hmm. if it was the past year when you've been low carb. So I think that's the one benefit for people getting a calcium score at some point in their life. So they have a baseline to refer to if they get one again in the future, but also it can be really helpful for people who have elevated LDL and, you know, they're told by their doctor, they're a ticking time bomb and need to start therapy right away. And then you get a calcium score. And if it's zero, 
It doesn't mean it's going to forever stay zero, but it's very reassuring to say, okay, the risk at this moment is extremely low. So now we can sort of take our time and figure out how is this impacting your health overall? Are there things we can do to, to change your lipids? Do we need to do that? How can we follow you going forward? It sort of lets everybody take a collective breath and say, okay, you know, it's not the the high risk, dangerous situation that you are led to believe. So that's another way that calcium scores can be really beneficial. But again, one zero calcium score doesn't mean it's going to forever be a zero calcium score. So you do need to follow it. But there was this great paper that came out. I think it's great. Any paper, any paper that supports my belief is my definition of great, right? <laughs> that's the joke, of yeah. course. But um, it looked at people with LDL cholesterol above 190 who are 60 years old when they got a, a calcium score that was zero. They followed them for 10 years, and over half of them maintained a zero calcium score between age 60 and 70, despite an LDL above 190, which is considered dangerous, ticking time bomb, you know, hurry up and treat type of cholesterol. So that, if, I mean, that just really has to open people's eyes to say, huh, not all elevated cholesterol is the same is not dangerous in all situations. So maybe we can individualize workup and individualize treatment and calcium score is one way to do that. Yeah. So if I if I were to get a calcium score and it was 40 or 50 or let's say I'll just put a number on it and I'm 45 now, like yeah. can I do anything to change that calcium build up in my like Yeah, good question. Good question. So the first thing is to understand what the calcium score shows you. And what it really shows you is that there is calcium somewhere in that vessel. And the majority of the time, it's in the wall of the vessel, but it tells you nothing about what's going on inside the vessel. So think about a hose. You know, the, the water flows through a hose, but there's the plastic coating um, around the hose. So that's like your blood vessel. There's the lumen, which is where the blood flows, but then there's the muscle of the vessel which sort of encircles it like the hose. Um, so the cal calcium that's in the wall of the vessel does not in and of itself harm you. That's not what causes a heart attack, but that's a symbol or a measurement that there has been vascular injury there and a healing response with calcium. What we really care about is plaque inside the artery. That's what can grow and break off and cause heart attack. So a calcium score doesn't tell you about that. So based on that, I don't think trying to reverse or lower a calcium score is really a good goal um, because it doesn't really tell you what's going on inside the artery. And in fact, sometimes increasing your calcium score can be beneficial. And when I say that, people look at me sideways like, what are you talking about? But assume you have some plaque in the wall of your, or sorry, in the lumen of your artery, and it's a soft or more unstable plaque. But then whether through medications or through your lifestyle or whatever, you're able to stabilize that plaque more, you may see that that plaque becomes calcified. Well, that transition from soft plaque to calcified plaque can actually be a beneficial transition. So my point being that reducing calcium scores isn't by definition beneficial, but slowing progression perhaps, or certainly if you are able to evaluate with a CT angiogram, which is a much more involved test and slightly higher radiation dose and uses contrast and more expensive, but that can tell you what's inside your arteries. And then if you can follow that to see how the plaque is changing, to me, that makes more sense. Now that is outside guidelines and outside current evidence base because those studies haven't been done, but it certainly makes sense to me. So this is a long answer of saying like, I'm not sure that trying to reverse your calcium score is the right goal, but instead to prevent interluminal plaque and unstable interluminal plaque progression is the goal. And are we able to, to determine what is soft and hard plaque buildup? Like, you know, with a CT angiogram, okay. um, you can now not a hundred percent of the time. Um, but that is something that is being improved upon on a continual basis. And as technology improves, it's getting better and better. There are invasive procedures you can do that can tell, but that's not routine by any means and carries risk. So I think CT angiogram is our best bet for that and is continuing to prove all the time. But most, most really good quality scanners and good quality um, institutions that do a lot of them and read them well uh, can tell the difference between soft and calcified plaque. Yeah. And Brett, in what occasion would you go on to suggest someone get a CT angiogram? Like what you know, what factors need to be in place for you to go, actually, I think this is a good idea, despite the fact that it might not necessarily be in general sort of uh, 
best practice guidelines or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple different ones. Now, first, you know, I see a very um, select subset of patients in my practice because those are the ones who seek me out. Frequently, they're people who don't want to take medications but are at higher risk of heart disease and want to talk to somebody who knows about medications and uses medications but isn't, you know, just here's your prescription, see you later, but balances out with lifestyle and supplements and and kind of sees the whole picture. So in that setting, if somebody doesn't want to take medications, then doing a CT angiogram can be helpful because if they have soft, vulnerable looking plaque, to me that says, okay, we just raised your risk level significantly where now a statin, which is a four letter word in a lot of communities, now a statin may be worth adding to your treatment regimen, not as the only treatment, not as here's your you know, your golden goose that's going to fix everything. No, but here's one more part of your overall treatment program if you want to be as aggressive as possible for treating your increased risk. So that's somewhere where a CT angiogram can be helpful or someone who has a CT angiogram already and is starting a treatment protocol and wants to know, is this being beneficial? Then following that CT angiogram at some point in the future can also really be beneficial. Um, So I think either one of those um, scenarios is, is very helpful. Um, the way they're traditionally used though, is I have chest pain. Do I have a severe narrowing in my artery? And that's, I think that maybe the least useful, <laughs> I mean, still can be helpful, but that's not how I tend to use CT angiograms. Now I use them more for, um, prevention, for better risk assessment, for better definition of intensity of medical therapy. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that makes perfect sense. Brett, what are some of the biggest levers in your practice that you pull when people sort of come to you for their health. So, I mean, you obviously you work with health coaches and in that sort of low carb space. Um, can you talk us through the what someone might get if they come to you or your sort of practice uh, yeah. in terms of your treatment? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm sort of, I guess I'm known for um, my work in the low carb sphere, but I also am a strong proponent of exercise, regular exercise, combination of resistance training and aerobic cardio type exercise, strong proponent of sleep hygiene and getting adequate sleep, of stress management. Um, Those are all very important pillars of health that we are going to talk about, whether you want to or not, I'm bringing it up in in our meetings with my patients. So um, I think that's very important. And then from a nutrition standpoint though, It's not that I want everybody to follow a keto diet or even everybody to follow a moderate low-carb diet. I mean, for as many people as I start on a keto diet, I maybe take off the same number of people off a keto diet Um, because depending on what your goals are, what you're trying to achieve and how you've responded to a keto diet, some people might do better with a slightly higher carb, whether, you know, 50, 75, 80 grams of carbs as opposed to the 20 or 30 grams of carbs. Um, Sometimes we get lulled into thinking like if this is good for one thing, it's good for everything. And that's that's not always the case. So I think it's important to be open to different dietary interventions. And, you know, a, a couple of my patients are completely plant-based. And I would almost never purposely start somebody on a completely plant-based diet because I believe it is an insufficient diet and it requires supplements and requires a lot more work. But it's totally doable if you have the time and the dedication and the commitment and you want to be plant-based for other reasons, then absolutely, I'm going to work with you to get you on the healthiest plant-based diet. Because just like there are healthy meat-based diets, there are very unhealthy plant-based diets. So I think dietary quality is first and foremost. And so that's what I work with the majority of my patients. Now, being low carb usually um, increases dietary quality quite a bit. So uh, I do tend to default that way. But I think being open to all dietary approaches or names or buckets or however you want to call it is, is really important. So I, I don't know, I guess that's a, a little bit of an overview. Um, and, but the same thing is that I don't ignore medications. You know, I think medications have a role and it's very important to differentiate primary prevention from secondary prevention, people who have no vascular disease versus people who do people who are at, you know, low, moderate, high risk. And how do you define that? And so it, it's basically giving, um, your health evaluation, um, a, a sharper microscope to really see, um, more clearly what's going on. So I I guess that's the framework of how I approach patients. 
have you changed your practice over the years the longer you're in the sort of lifestyle space Brett like Dr Brett 17 years ago new and low carb like is that quite different from how it might be now or oh yeah oh yeah definitely I mean there was a time where I was like butter coffee for everybody and you know put cream on everything and just as much butter as you can put is great go for it and I've definitely backed off of that um and not to the point where saying fat is dangerous, avoid fat, but that's calories, you know, and you can't ignore it. That is definitely calories and you can definitely overdo it on, on fat. Um, and a keto diet doesn't have to be super high fat. And yeah. I was fascinated, you know, Adele Height, who I've worked with for years at, at Diet Doctor, unfortunately, the late Adele Height, who unfortunately passed, um, you know, she pointed out to me how a number of studies show that you take them on their their baseline diet and transition in the study to a low carb, quote unquote, high fat diet. And because their calories naturally go down, even though the percent of fat goes up, their absolute fat grams increases by like six or seven grams per day of fat. And that's the quote unquote, high fat diet is like, oh, okay, it does, you know, so even the studies have shown it's, it's, it's not necessarily adding the fat, it's reducing the carbohydrates. So, so that's one thing that, that, my eyes have been open to in the past like five years or so and then and then the importance of protein you know just how protein uh, uh how low protein the average person needs like 12 to 14 percent of your calories from protein and you know maybe like 60 grams a day and that's just totally insufficient for for optimal um lean muscle tissue and for metabolic health and protein is a very satiating macronutrient. And so at least getting it up to the 1.5 grams per kilo or getting it up to like the 25% of your calories. So increasing the protein. And there was a time where I bought into the whole protein's bad for blood sugar and gluconeogenesis and is going to quote unquote kick you out of ketosis. And that's just not the case at these levels. I mean, it's absolutely not. It's actually beneficial for blood sugar and metabolic health. There are studies that show that, especially if it's improving satiety and further helping you decrease your caloric intake. So I think the fear of protein has really been overplayed as well. So yeah, I guess those are the, some of the things that have shifted in my mindset on how I approach low carbon keto diets. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting with that um, the point you raise about quote unquote high fat because I think one of my introductions to the ketogenic diet was the art and science of low carb living and performance. And in those books by Finney and Volokh, they state actually that you know the fat isn't necessarily that high because part of the energy we get from fat should be energy stored on the body. And I, this is something which I talk to clients about who come to see me who have been failing on their weight loss strategy with a keto diet because yeah. of the fat bombs and the bulletproof coffees and right. the, you know, right. the layering on of the fat. I find that super interesting. Yeah. And in the beginning, I think there's definitely a role for that. You know, you're reducing your calorie intake from carbs. You need to replace it from somewhere else. You're taking away a lot of the sweets and treats and foods you avoid. So it helps to replace them with something else. So I can see how in the initial period of a keto diet, that type of framework can be really beneficial. But then over time, I think it's important to kind of reassess and sort of strip that away. So the keto diet you're initially successful with doesn't have to be the keto diet you stick with for the rest of your life. And in fact, it frequently isn't. And you do have to sort of readjust. Brett, with regards to the work that you do on the podcast, and you talk to so many interesting people, have you got any sort of top interviews or top, um, yeah, I guess interviews with people who have really been seminal and changing your mindset or not even about changing your mindset, but that you really enjoyed and really learned a lot from? That's a tough question because I I enjoy so many of my podcasts. I mean, I always say that even if no one was listening to these podcasts, I would still want to do them just because it's such an amazing opportunity to meet these incredible people and have conversations with these incredible people that I just enjoy doing. So to pick a couple, is kind of like picking my favorite child. So uh, it's a little hard to do. But I guess one example I, I can give is that, you know, I've been trying to reach out to people who are not in the low carb sphere and who are maybe even critical of low carb. You know, I interviewed um, Dr. Kevin Hall and Dr. Stephen Guianet, and, you know, they tend to be critical at times of, of low carb. And um, you can even say that maybe they have a bias against low carb, but they're, they're, it, it's so fascinating to get to who they are as people and their motivation because they still want to help understand what is going on with weight gain and weight loss and, and how can we further the science to eventually trickle down to help people better like their motivation is still there. 
um, even if we may see things differently when it comes to some of the specifics, but I, I just love to explore that with them and, and have reasonable, rational conversations about it that are, um, that, that are still very exciting. So that's something that I've been trying to do more of um, that I think is, is really interesting. And, and I'm very thankful I have the opportunity to do it. Yeah, no, I completely appreciate that. And I, I saw um, with interest that Lane Norton's going to low carb Denver actually early next year. And um, I follow Lane for his sort of physique science, his, you know, protein bent. And I like, you know, he, I noticed that on podcasts and other channels, he's much more considerate than he is on social media you know like there's just well and we can say that about plenty of low carb yeah we can say that about plenty of low carb people too i mean some people are just so vocal and outrageous and frankly rude and inconsiderate on social media and then you get them in person and they're just a big teddy bear with uh you know with the goals <laughs> of just helping people and so it's totally different but yeah i'm really looking forward to low carb denver i'm going to moderate a discussion with um with lane and paul mason um, and Tom Lauer. And so we're going to have a, I'm going to moderate a discussion and we're just going to start airing things out and discussing where we agree, where we disagree, why we disagree. What's the path forward? What can people learn from the disagreement to help them like to explore all these issues? I think it's going to be great. I think, uh, you know, Dr. Jeff Gerber just did a great job of orchestrating, uh, that everybody's going to be there and, and really talking about the future of nutrition, right? It's not, this is a keto conference. It's, this is the future of nutrition. Now, low carbon keto is going to play a role of that, but what else is going to going to play a role and how do we integrate it all moving forward? So I think that's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to that one. Oh, I completely agree. And, and I really like that point that what is the future of nutrition? Because I agree with you in that it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be myopic on macronutrients or sort of approaches to eating. And in fact, you mentioned the point of food quality earlier. And I think that's mm -hmm. fundamentally the shift that I think probably has the most important role to play with regards to sort of people's health and people's diet. And, you know, we talk about 93% of the US population are metabolically unhealthy, you know, and it's, it's really difficult to navigate food when the food environment is absolutely working against absolutely. sort of uh you know um against us yeah i mean it, it's clear that our food environment is a large part of of the sort of failed healthy lifestyle interventions because you, you got to constantly fight through all the temptation that's out there um and it's too easy it's too cheap it's too available it's too easy it's too tasty um, and, and that's, that's a lot to overcome for sure. So the, the deck is stacked against us, but that doesn't make it hopeless, right? With education and with tips and with, you know, different tricks and tools, you can, you can navigate the minefield and come out unscathed. Yeah, absolutely. And just my last point on that sort of food environment is I, your presentation at Metabolic Health Summit, I believe it was 2020 and you had that slide of the dietary guidelines and the linear trajectory of when the guidelines were put in place and subsequent sort of obesity and, and cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and they all sort of went up like this. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that slide used many times actually and one of the criticisms that people say is, well, those diseases were already going up when the guidelines were put in place. So there was not, you know, the time, the timing of the guidelines causing the, the diseases, it, it doesn't quite fit because it takes a few years for people to implement the guidelines and in that public health space. You posited it differently, though, in that you said, you know, these were put in place to stem the tide of obesity and cardiovascular disease, and it did not work. And so for, for the last 50 years, this has not worked yet. Nothing has changed in that space, which is why it's so good that we've got physicians, nutritionists, we've got low carb or nutrition conferences that are all sort of geared towards finding a different path, even if it is sort of ground roots and not up high, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is a very important differentiation that it's very clear instituting the guidelines did not work. Now, does that mean the content in the guidelines is incorrect, or does that mean the guidelines had untoward effects that you know weren't really thought of? And it's probably both to a degree, but certainly 
the guidelines created this atmosphere for anything low fat to be labeled as healthy. And, and that was just a complete disaster, but not one that was fought by anybody um, promoting the guidelines, right? I mean, it, it just opened up the doors for it. And um, we can look back now and say, oh, well, we never thought that was healthy, but where was the discussion about it? There was really not mu- enough of a discussion about it. We should have been shouting it from the rooftops and making it the most important issue that, no, just because it's low fat, if it's high carbon, high sugar, it's not healthy. But no, we weren't shouting that nearly loudly enough. Um, so yeah, I created that whole atmosphere, which was clearly unhelpful. And um, if you have something you're promoting for 50 years and the thing you hope it to be doing is clearly going the opposite direction. At some point you need to abandon it and shift gears. And hopefully you would do that far before 50 years, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, things take time. I know totally. Um, yeah. Dr. Brett, I'm really mindful of your time. And I, um, so I just have two more questions related to you actually. Um, one is, are you low carb yourself? Like what does your diet look like? Yeah, I am. And, you know, when I started low carb, I was checking my ketones and making sure I was in ketosis. So now I have to admit, I, I don't really care. I don't check, but I, I probably am still in ketosis because it's just the way I eat. You know, I, uh, you know, I frequently have my first meal around 10 30, 11 o'clock, and it's almost always a bunch of leftover veggies, like, you know, broccoli and cauliflower and, and spinach and green beans and, uh, with a couple eggs and whatever leftover protein I had, whether it's salmon or steak or, or ground beef or um, sometimes like canned sardines even. Um, that's usually my first meal. And then my dinner is <laughs> quite similar. It's usually freshly made uh, steamed veggies with a lot of salt and like half an avocado and then, you know, grilled steak or ground beef or uh, some sort of protein source. Um, that's usually what I eat. You know, my, my treat, my splurge is I like, uh, cottage cheese, peanut butter and blueberries and raspberries. That's sort of my, my splurge and my treat. And it's so good. So some people, when I explain it to say, that sounds disgusting, but it is so good. And that is, you know, that's the one thing that can be addictive for me. So I do have to watch that, but that, that's sort of my treat. Yeah. Yeah. That is delicious. Now. Okay. Just to drill a little bit deeper into that, do you blend your cottage cheese first and then have it sort of creamy and then put the peanut butter on top? Or no, just- I just dump it a bowl, dump in the peanut butter, cut up the berries, put the berries in there, kind of mix it around a little bit, and then just go to town. That sounds so <laughs> delicious. I like Small to put uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I put protein powder into my cottage cheese. That's quite good. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that bread. And now you mentioned, and of course we had the conversation of your sort of previous athletic history as an Ironman athlete. Um, what do you do now for exercise? Yeah, now um, I wish I could still train and compete like I did, but you know, time and, and body injuries <laughs> catch up with you for sure. Uh, but now I, I mountain bike at least once a week and that is my pure escape. I love that. That's my therapy, my mental therapy, my physical therapy and my workout all, all rolled into one just to be out on the trails with nobody around, no cars, no traffic lights, just you know, rabbits and squirrels and birds and trees and open sky is just amazing. Um, so I love mountain biking. I'll, I'll still get in the pool and swim, you know, probably one day a week. And then I'll get in the gym tw- uh, at least twice a week. And then other times it's just being outside, you know, walking. My my dog, I walk him so much and he probably looks at me and says, again, really? And I'm like, yep, we gotta <laughs> go. Let's go. Because just getting outside for 15, 20, 30 minutes, multiple times a day, I think is, is so important. Yeah. So that's sort of what my workout looks like now. And I, you know, if I can, I ride my bike everywhere that I can and hopefully get out for another mountain bike ride during the week. But those are all sort of the bonuses. The, the four basic um, workouts are, are the things I have to get in every week. Yeah. Oh, that is awesome, Brett. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Um, particularly the discussion around the usefulness of the coronary calcium score, but also just in general, your philosophy and how you see um, things have shifted over time and, and where we can really make the most bang for our buck, I suppose, in terms of our health. Um, obviously, I'm going to put links in the uh, show notes as to where to find you for those people who are unfamiliar, but can you just sort of end by telling us that as well? Like, where can we find you? Yeah. I mean, most of my work now is at dietdoctor.com. Um, it's where I do most of my writing and, and uh, medical reviewing of all the content we have. 
And of course, our YouTube channel, the Diet Doctor YouTube channel is where you'll find my podcast, which comes out every other week, the Diet Doctor podcast. And I usually do two or three YouTube videos per week talking about some subject or some study um, to really help for, sort of clarify and explain things. So, uh, so pretty prevalent on YouTube. Um, for seeing me as a patient, that's lowcarbcardiologist.com. Unfortunately, I don't see people in, in New Zealand, even though I have a telemedicine practice. I, I only see patients in the seven states in the U.S. where I'm where I'm licensed. Um, yeah, so those are the best best places to find me. That is awesome, Brett. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I hope you get to go out on your bike this weekend. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a great discussion. So thank you. team hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed chatting to Brett and we will put all of his contact details over on the show notes as per usual and next week on the podcast I've got my mate Cliff he is back on and we have another awesome conversation because that is what you do with Dr Cliff Harvey how can you not he is such a wealth of information until then you can catch me over on Facebook at Nikki Willardin Nutrition over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head on to my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to recipe portal access for 12 bucks a month. You get a ton of recipes and information, my weekly email, access to our Facebook group where we do live forums and the ability to pick my brain on anything nutrition related. And that is also the place, mickeywillardin.com, where you can book a consultation or sign up to one of my many meal plan options. All right, team, you have a great week, and I'll catch you next week.